Now to him who was able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment to the eternal God, of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever and ever. Amen. Then turn to Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 11. (coughs) Here's what he says. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death Put it uh, to, by it having been put to death, uh, the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built up on a foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple to the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard about the stewardship of God's grace, which he has given to me for you, that by revelation there was uh, made known to me the mystery, as I wrote uh, before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed in the holy, uh, to his holy apostles and the prophets in the spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, of, uh, of the body and fellow partakers of the promises of, in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace, which he has given me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, uh, to uh, preach the, to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages past has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which was carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, when it comes to fiction, uh, one of the most popular genres is that of the mystery novel. Now, some of the more popular mystery novel writers today are John Grisham, James Patterson, and Stephen King. But the most prolific and successful mystery writer of all times was not a man, but a woman, Agatha Christie. And even if you've never read any of her books, I bet you're familiar with at least some of the titles and perhaps the characters she developed. How about this one? And Then There Was None. Or Murder on the Orient Express. Or the murder of Roger Ackroyd. Or the ABC murders. 
or a murder is announced. Now, you might be catching a theme there. <laughs> There's a reason that Christie has been called the Duchess of Death, the Mistress of Mystery, and the Queen of Crime. Agatha Christie wrote 66 books uh, that revolve around two, uh, some of which revolve around two of her most uh, popular characters. Miss Marples, who is an old spinster sleuth who solves murders by the shrewd intelligence that she has, and Hercules, or Herclue, her, one more time, Hercule Perrault, a Belgian detective who's described in the book as this. Listen, it says, hardly more than four, uh, five feet, four inches tall, but he carried himself with great dignity. He had a head that was exactly the shape of an egg, and he always had it perched a little to the side. His mustache was very stiff and military, and even, everything, uh, even if everything on his face was covered up, the tips of his mustache and his pink nose uh, was visible. The neatness of his attire was almost incredible. I believe a speck of dust would have caused him more pain than a bullet wound. Now, Agatha Christie was able to write interesting books because she lived an interesting life. Uh, born in uh, 1890 as Agatha Mary Clarissa Miller, uh, she had two much older siblings, so she was raised basically as an only child. Now, she learned to read at the age of four and read and read she did. Matter of fact, almost all good writers were voracious readers. Well, she did experience heartache in the early part of her life when she was 11 years old. Her dad died, and at 15, her mom sent her off to France to a boarding school where she hoped to become a concert pianist and an opera singer. But she didn't like the strict discipline, and so she moved back home to her mother, who was at that time struggling with health issues. Well, to help in that, they decided to go to Egypt, where they lived for three months. It was at that time that she developed her interest in archaeology. She met her husband, Archie Christie, an officer in the Royal um, Artillery. They got engaged in three months and uh, later married, having one child. Well, Christie not only knew how to write drama, she knew how to live it. In December 3rd, 1926, after an argument with her husband, she went missing from her home. The following morning, her car was discovered parked above a chalk quarry uh, with expired driver's license and clothes inside. The story of the missing author was plastered all over British newspapers. More than 1,000 police officers and 15,000 volunteers searched the rural landscape. Despite an exhaustive manhunt, she was only found 10 days later. She was finally located 184 miles away, registered under an assumed name at a hotel. Some say that she had a nervous breakdown and leading to amnesia. Others believe that the whole incident was a publicity stunt. I don't know. I mean, it's a mystery to me. So later... She married, uh, remarried uh, ar archaeologist Max uh, Mellowan, and she spent a fair amount of time in Iraq. Uh, he was still alive when Agatha died in 1976 at the age of 85. Now, you've heard of starving artists. She was definitely no starving author. She made a lot of money from her books. In the late 50s, she was bringing in 100,000 pounds a year, which is the equivalent of $2.5 million today. As of 2020... Her novels have sold more than 2 billion copies in 44 languages, making her the most translated fiction author in history. In 2013, 600 members of the Crime Writers Association chose The Murder of Roger Ackroyd as the best whodunit ever written. Now, for a mystery novel to work, a murder mystery, you have to leave the readers guessing along the way who the murderer was until the very end. But did you know that Agatha Christie herself seldom decided who the murderer would be until about three-quarters through the writing of the book? Evidently, she not only wanted to keep her uh, readers in suspense, but herself as well. 
Now here, in those last few verses I wrote, I read in Romans, Paul speaks of the mystery of God in the plan of salvation. Now last week we answered the question of who done it. The answer, of course, was Jesus through his life and death and resurrection. But there's another mystery that's connected with and a component to that, which is the mystery of God and Christ, which produces the mystery of the church. Well, to understand this mystery of the church and how it fits into the plan of God, we want to turn from Romans 16 to Ephesians chapter 2, where I read, uh, where Paul speaks of the mystery of the church. So why don't we pray and then get into the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. Help me as I proclaim the truth that has been hidden and now is revealed and was revealed by Paul. So bless us as we look at this and then apply it to our hearts and minds. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, if you're going to talk about uh, the mystery of the church, though, as something hidden but now revealed, I think the first thing we're going to have to do is define the word church. Now, most people, when they hear the word church, just simply think about a building. You know how the kids learn it. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors and see the people. But if that was actually done the right way, it would be, here's the building. Here's the steeple. Open the doors and see the church, the people. The word for church is ecclesia which has two parts, ek, means out of, and kaleo, which means called. So the church are those who are, are called out by God. In the common Greek usage, it meant any kind of assembly that was gathered. So the Puritans, they referred to their buildings as meeting places rather than as churches. But here's a question, when did the church actually begin? Now if you were to ask Reformed theologians, they would say the church began in the Garden of Eden with Abel and uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, they say that in all ages, wherever the people of God are gathered, that is the church. So Reformed theologians would say that Israel was the church in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, the church is just Israel. In other words, it's just really the same organization, the same group, just by two different names. But I think that understanding is wrong. Gentile believers are called the children of Abraham, and we are by faith, but nowhere are we called the children of Jacob, or Israelites, or Jews. The church was first established in Jerusalem in Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus was resurrected. On that day, the new covenant was inaugurated when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the people. And that's why it's called a mystery. It was hidden in the mind of God, but revealed and manifested after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, if I were preaching through Ephesians verse by verse, we'd probably take five or six uh, sermons to do this one. But what we want to do is just kind of read through it and get the flow of Paul's thought and see what he reveals here about this mystery he calls the church. So there's two overall points, and that's uh, first is uh, chapter 2, 11 to 21, which you can title the work of Christ, and the next is 3, 1 to 12, which is simply the role of Paul. So the work of Christ. By the way, you know, before you give anybody the good news of the gospel, you first have to give them the bad news. I mean, you shouldn't start your gospel presentation with God loves you and has a wonderful plan with your, for your life. Instead, you ought to start with God is very angry with you for breaking his commandments. You see, until people see the reality of their sins and how it justly places them under the wrath of God, they will not see any value in Christ's work. If they don't believe the bad news, they're not going to receive the good news. Well, here in this section of Ephesians, Paul is reminding his Gentile readers not so much about how bad they were, before they came to Christ, but rather how bad off they were as Gentiles, as all Gentiles are, before the gospel was proclaimed to them. Listen to the sad plight that Paul describes starting in verse 11. He says this, Therefore remember that formerly you Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, 
excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, circumcision is the physical sign mark on the body of a Jewish man which shows that he belongs to the nation of Israel, the people of God. Remember when David met uh, Goliath or heard about him, he uh, retorted and said, you know, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So as the Jews used it, to be uncircumcised was a a derisive uh, term. It meant to be unclean. And Paul described the sad uh, plight of these Gentiles before the gospel came with five phrases. The first thing he tells us is that they were separate from Christ. Mormons believe that after Jesus was resurrected, he came to America and preached the gospel to the Indians here. No, he didn't. It was the followers of Christ, not Jesus himself, who proclaimed the gospel to the Gentiles. The focus of Jesus' ministry was on the nation of Israel. Christ means Messiah. He was a Jewish Messiah. So generations of Aztecs and Incas lived and died and perished without ever hearing of this coming Savior. Secondly, he tells us, though, is that they were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. In the Old Testament, there were some Gentiles who joined into the nation of Israel and became part of God's people. You think about Rahab and Caleb, Ruth, Uriah the Hittite. But they had to come in as proselytes. In other words, converts, which would mean for the men undergoing circumcision. Otherwise, they were non-citizens, aliens just residing in the land. The thing Paul tells us, though, is that they were strangers to the covenant. There were a number of promises made to Israel, but they were of no value to those who weren't part of that covenant community. I remember back when we worked at the, I worked at the dairy, I had a meeting one time, and one of the employees brought up the issue of pay. And uh, he said this, he said, you know, we, you know what are we going to do about like, the pay? And I remember the CEO said this, he said, yeah, we've decided to address this issue. We're going to start hiring new people at higher wages. Now, this guy was not concerned about the new people, he was concerned about himself. I mean, he was worried about his own paycheck, not theirs. So it doesn't matter what benefits your company gives out if they're not offered to you. And whatever promises were made in the Old Covenant, they were not of any value to the Chinese or the Tibetans before the time of Christ. And that's why before the gospel went out, Paul said they had no hope and they were without God in the world. I mean, the Egyptians might mummify their pharaohs and pack them off with gold, but they died spiritually bankrupt. The Cheyenne may have buried their warriors with tomahawks and bows, but there was no happy hunting ground they were going to because before Christ came, all those generations lived and died and perished, having no hope without God in the world. And that's the state, listen carefully, that's your state if you haven't trusted in Christ. Now some of you are old enough to remember those commercials back in the 70s. Remember them for the Ronco products? Ever heard of them? Announcer would come on with some kind of product. The Vegematic, the Pocket Fisherman, the Ronco Rhinestone and Stud Setter. It changes everyday clothing into exciting fashions and you don't have to spend a fortune. The products are almost always sold for $19.99. But wait, if you order today, you'll receive this gift of steak knives. Most Ronco products had that, but wait. Well, Paul, in contrasting the Gentiles' former state with their present situation, uses a but now. But now, verse 13, In Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one, breaking down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinance, so that he himself may make the two 
into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those of you who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Come home, come home. You who are Gentiles, come home. Quietly, tenderly, Jesus is calling Gentiles, oh Gentiles, come home. You see, when the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, the new covenant was inaugurated and the church was born. And God began to fulfill his ancient promise to Abraham when he said this, Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and the north and the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And how is it accomplished? He says, by the blood of Christ. Death, Christ's death on the cross was the payment for the sins of his people, which allowed us to be reconciled to God. Till on the cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. But Jesus' death not only reconciled man to man, but man, or, uh, man to God, but also man to man. Specifically, he says, the Jews to the Gentiles. And there's always been times of ethnic tensions and religious strife. Think about Rwanda. Some of you are old enough to remember that. 1994, in a 100-day period, uh, Tutsi tribesmen killed 500,000 of their Hutu neighbors. In India, there's clashes all the time between the Hindus and the Muslims, and both of them target the Christians. Well, the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles at that time was quite real. I mean, even if there wasn't open violence, there was always this simmering mutual contempt for each other. I mean, the Jews viewed the Gentiles as religiously defiled idol worshipers, blind and ignorant of the true God, which of course was true. But the Gentiles also despised the Jews, viewing them as odd, antisocial bunch, who for some strange reason thought themselves superior to the Romans and the Greeks. Absurd. Well, what divided the Jews from the Gentiles was the law, particularly the ceremonial law, which made Jews insiders and Gentiles outsiders. And you think about it, even the temple itself recognized that, didn't it? A number of years back, they found a stone tablet that was on the temple in Jesus' day. It said this, Foreigners must not enter inside the balustrade, that means the railings that separated off, into the forecourt around the sanctuary. Whoever's caught will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Gentiles were held out from the holier place. Well, Jews and Gentiles were separated from each other by the law, but Christ has made both groups into one by breaking down the barrier of the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity of the law and commandments contained in the ordinance so that he himself may make the two into one new man, establishing peace. If you ever go to North Dakota on your way to Canada you should stop at the International Peace Garden. It's on the border between North Dakota and Manitoba. It has 2,300 acres of some of the most beautiful flowers you can ever see, and they're laid out in all these special designs. They even have this giant floral clock. The groundskeepers plant 150,000 flowers each year. Established in 1932, it serves as a symbol of the peaceful relationship between the two countries. Now contrast that to the Berlin Wall, which was divided uh, the city of Berlin between the Communist East and the Democratic West. At the height of the Cold War, when the United States and the Soviet Union uh, were still at odds, then-President Ronald Reagan went to Germany, stood outside the Brandenburg Gate, 
and he made a speech. And at that time, when the Soviet Union was toying with reform, Reagan said this, We welcome change and openness, for we believe that the freedom and security, our freedom and security go together, that the advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. There's one sign that the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Now Jesus tore down the wall, breaking down the barrier, the dividing wall, between Gentiles and Jews through his cross. You see, because once a person realizes that they're a sinner and that the law can't save them, then they realize their only hope is Jesus, and at the cross, every person would be a sinner, equally offered that salvation. And that's why he says this, quoting from the Old Testament, he says, He came and preached peace to those of you who are far away, that's the Gentiles, and to those of you who are near, that's the Jews. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And that's why we sing songs like, We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. Let's add plight, the amazing grace, but look at the wonderful results. Because of Christ's work, we Gentiles in the church are not illegal immigrants. We're not temporary guest workers. We're not here on a visa. We don't need a green card because we're fellow citizens of the saints. You know, in some countries, it's really hard uh, for foreigners to gain citizenship. Do you know which uh, are the most restrictive countries for this? I'll give you a list. Vatican City. <laughs> Liechtenstein. Bhutan. Qatar. Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Switzerland, China, and North Korea. Now, I think the one requirement you have to have to become a citizen of North Korea is you have to be crazy because I don't think anyone would do it unless they were. Well, 33 countries are like ours where they allow for automatic citizenship to children who are born on their soil, but there's only one place that grants citizenship not on the basis of your first birth, but your second. That's heaven. Jesus told Dick Demas, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But once we are born again, then our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also await a Savior, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20. Now Paul uses another metaphor here. He says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the building is being fitted together, growing into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom also you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You see, as believers, we're called on to join in the work of building up the church. Jesus established this, the only organization that he did. It's through the church that he works in the world today. So people, some people, are actively trying to tear down the church. You know, Paul talked about those who are enemies within, enemies of the cross. But I have to tell you, there's a whole lot more people. They're not actually antagonistic towards it. They actually attend church. But they never take stock in it. They never invest their time and their energies and their resources. They're just mere spectators. But others see and understand the big picture of what Christ is doing through the church and join in building up the church. Rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and mind and soul and strength to serve the King of Kings. Well, that brings us to our second point, though, the role of Paul. You know, it's, it's not unusual for uh, NFL t uh, football teams to hire uh, soccer players from other countries uh, to be their kickers. A number of years ago, the Minnesota Vikings had a kicker. His name was Benny Ricardo. He was from Paraguay. 
And uh, he didn't know much about the game of football, but when he was interviewed one time, I heard him say this. He said, I don't know much about football, but I know this. I have to kick the ball between those two poles. If I kick the ball between the poles, I pick up a check. If I don't kick the ball between the two poles, I don't pick up no check. Well, Paul knew what his role was and what God had called him to in this unfolding of the mystery of Christ's church. He starts by saying in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, For this reason, I, the prisoner, uh, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace which has been given to me, that by the revelation that was made known to me, this mystery as I wrote to you before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, but has now been revealed to his holy prophets, our apostles and prophets, in the Spirit. That's what I preached on last week, the mystery of Christ, which was hidden and then revealed and now proclaimed. But Paul not only preached the mystery of Christ, but as the chief theologian for the church, he explained the mystery of the church. Now here he connects the mystery of Christ to the mystery of the church because he goes on to say this, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promises in Christ through the gospel. Now I have to say this, you have to understand, the idea that the Gentiles would be converted and come to a knowledge of the God of Israel is all over proclaimed in the Old Testament. I mean, you can find many passages that teach that. And I, I argued when I went through Revelation chapter 20 that the nations as a whole are going to be converted after Jesus returns. But the mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament, but revealed by Paul, was this new reality of the church where you would have redeemed Gentiles joining with a small number of Jews who would become an equal partners uh, in the promises made by God. So therefore, now there's no, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. You see, Israel was established as a nation at Mount Sinai when God gave the Old Testament, the covenant of Moses, but the problem was that that law promised those who would keep it life, but it didn't give you the power to perform. It bid men to fly, but it didn't give them wings. And in that sense, the old covenant wasn't working. And that's why God promised he would someday make a new covenant with his people where, quote, Ezekiel 36, 26 to 28, I will give them a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your forefathers so that you will be my people and I will be your God. See, the promise of the new covenant will someday be fulfilled when Israel's converted at the time of Christ's return. But the mystery was that before that new covenant's established with Israel, there would be Gentiles and a few Jews that would enter into that new covenant. And that group is called the church. You see, God had made a salvation shift. Now rather than God's people being mainly or almost exclusively Jews with a smattering of Gentiles, he was now going to make it a majority Gentiles with only a small number of Jews. Now often when a CEO takes over a company, there's tensions and difficulties as he makes changes and implements new policies. I mean, people are resistant. They don't like to change. Some quit. Others have to be fired. I mean, I don't understand why we can't keep doing things the way we used to do them. It's because the old ways weren't working. Now, Paul, in a sense, was Christ's CEO, who was supposed to define, describe, and proclaim the new covenant, which changes direction and implements new policies. You see, the church is not simply Israel now expanded to include Gentiles. 
Rather, Paul says it's a new man, a new entity. And as Jesus said, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. And you can't sew a patch of new cloth on old clothes. Israel was an old wineskin. The church is new. The church is not Israel, just patched up a bit. And many Jews at that time had a hard time understanding and accepting this shift. And that's why some were suspicious of Paul, even in the church. Others, like the Judaizers, refused to make the shift. They maintained that Gentiles had to be circumcised and become Jews to be saved. I listened to a rabbi on a regular basis, Michael Skopag. He's from uh, the group um, Jews for Judaism. It's kind of the, par- are the opposite of Jews for Jesus. And uh, he's doing something that's really interesting. He's going through the whole New Testament, book by book, verse by verse, explaining what it means, and then trying to refute it from a Jewish perspective. And uh, one of the things that he, he does quite often is he'll say that Paul is arrogant. He's arrogant. You know, I mean, here's this Paul who thought that he was this special person who got this new revelation that nobody else got. Well, Paul did get a special revelation that no one else got. And he wasn't arrogant because he tells us in the text here that it was given to him the very least of the saints. Elsewhere, he calls himself the chief of sinners. Still, elsewhere, he calls himself a nobody. And yet, wonder of wonder, grace upon grace, God had chosen this former blasphemer and persecutor of the church to be the steward to explain the mystery of the church. Well, at the same time that Paul was explaining this mystery of the church to the saints, God, through the mystery of the church, was teaching the angels in heaven. Look at what he says. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be known through the church to who? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Now, I've never seen an angel, though I have to say I've met three different people who've told me that they saw angels. None of the three knew each other. What was interesting to, to me about all three of their accounts was that they said when they saw, I asked, what did the angel look like? And they said, well, it, it was kind of an off-white pastel color. Isn't that weird? None of these three knew each other? But I've never seen angels. But I know this, angels have seen me. Angels have seen you. And if we had the eyes for it, we could probably see that there's angels right now watching what we're doing. And if they are watching what we're doing, there's a reason we sing songs that say, Oh, be careful, little tongue, what you say. Oh, be careful, little tongue, what you say. For the Father up above, he is looking down in love, so be careful, little tongue, what you say. You see, it's not just the Father looking down in love, but angels looking down in wonder to see believers who are forgiven again and again by God despite their many sins and failures. Holy, holy, holy is what the angels sing. And I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing redemption's story, they will fold their wings. For angels never felt the joy that our salvation brings. I imagine someday, not too far in the future, I'll be lying in a hospital bed and I'm going to take my last breath and I'm going to watch the monitor go flat. I expect at that time to look up and see an angel who will say, Doug, it's time to come home. You know, I originally wrote that I put, Doug, it's time to go home, but then I thought, no, 
it's dug, it's time to come home. And as we float through the ceiling and out the door and up through the air, I imagine he's going to turn to me and say, hey, tell me, what does it feel like to know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? And I think I'm going to say to him, do you have a thousand years? Because it's going to take me at least that long to get started. The mystery of the Christ, the mystery of his church, the mystery of God's grace. Hallelujah. What a Savior. See, we who are the believers are the church. Jesus died for us. But he also died for others that haven't been called in yet. And that's exactly what we want to be doing. May God give us the grace. Let's pray. Our Father and God, thank you for your grace and mercy. This is a whole lot to cover in a very short time. But I wanted to get the grand ski, uh, uh, sweep of it, Lord, because this is a wonderful thing. I, we don't think much of it now because the church is primarily Gentiles, but the idea that Gentiles could be brought in an equal basis with Jews was a stunning, stunning revelation. But Father and God, I thank you that you allow people like us to enter into your presence through your Son. And all who will come in that way are being built up as a temple in which you dwell. So bless us now. Thank you for your grace and mercy. We ask in Jesus' name.